Well, good morning, family. What a joy to be together this morning, and good morning to all of you watching at home as well. I invite you to take out your Bibles, if you will, and open to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to the time of the message. Father God, we are so grateful, grateful for this wonderful day to gather together uh, here in this room as well as as many virtually this morning, to gather as your people, to fellowship together, to worship you together, to hear from you as we look into your word. Thank you for your word. Your inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word. For it is here that we learn of you. It is here that we get to know your character, your nature. It is here we learn of what it is that you desire for us. It is here we learn of our Lord Jesus. It's here we learn the words of life. So in this time, I pray that you would uh, help us to have ears that are ready to listen hearts that are ready to respond to You, that we would hear You speak through Your Word. And then, Father, that You would pour Your grace upon us, for we are needy people. We do think as well this morning of many who have particular needs, some who are even in the hospital, a number have had surgeries this week, some who are sick, uh, some who have various situations going on in their life with, uh, with family, with uh, relationships, with, uh, with jobs. There are so many needs. You know them all. and We can't list them all this morning. Father, not only meet those needs, but our greatest need is to be drawn nearer to You and to be made more like Christ Jesus. So may You accomplish that in us this day and in this hour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning to our third study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Over the past two weeks, we looked at the first little section in this sermon from Jesus, verses 1 through 12. They're what we commonly call the Beatitudes because each one begins with the, with the word happy or joy or blessed and that's the word Latin, in Latin is beatitude. Eight characteristics we saw there that Jesus desires for you and me to exhibit. Eight inner qualities that He desires for us to have as His followers. And Jesus is teaching here His disciples on this hillside, on this mountainside. Probably in the front row are His twelve Chosen disciples and then gathered around are possibly hundreds of others self-identified followers of Jesus. And he's talking to us as followers of his about what Jesus' followers are, are to look like and to be like. And the question might arise if, if Jesus is beginning here what he will be saying as he goes along. He's establishing His kingdom. He's starting a movement that He tells us at the end of the book, right before He ascends, that this is global. Take this to the ends of the earth. Go and make followers, disciples of Mine. And the question arises, looking at those Beatitudes, those people who were, if you recall, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who long for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. If that's what describes His disciples, and by the way, we're not just to pick and choose one of those. They're all, all of those characteristics are supposed to characterize all of us. But how do people like that 
have any influence? How do they make any difference? How do they accomplish anything significant in such a vicious, tough, vile setting as the Roman Empire? And that would be especially a great question to ask as we look at these disciples, the twelve chosen disciples, four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were fishermen. One of them, Matthew, was a former tax collector, viewed by everybody in Israel as tax collectors were crooked and they were sellouts, compromisers, sympathizers with the Roman government. Another one, Simon was a zealot. A zealot was a was someone who was a Jewish nationalist. They were opposed in every way to Rome, and matter of fact, they were associated with lots of terrorist activity in the day. That would have made interesting campfires with the twelve disciples. You got a Roman sellout, a tax collector, and a zealot. But as we look at those guys, if they're characteristic of the rest, which we don't know the background of the other half of those twelve, we can say that none of these twelve chosen followers of Jesus brings any significant status or significant wealth or significant education or significant skills and abilities that would help in any national or global movement. If those are the chosen ones, we move to the crowd in general, these other hundreds that are there, we can probably say the same for them. They're mostly the normal, ordinary people or even the riffraff of society. And we could probably ask the same question today. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are supposed to be continuing the mission and taking this global, as we look around the room at one another, we say, okay, <laughs> really? We, we, you, me, us, we're supposed to take this global? I mean, you know me and I know you. We're a bunch of ordinary people. If we're supposed to live, as Jesus calls us, in this corrupt, crazy, insanely big world, I mean almost 8 billion people, how can we, Chapel of the Lake, make any real impact in this world? Especially if we're supposed to live as the poor in spirit, the mourners, the pure in heart, the meek, the peacemakers, the persecuted. I think that's exactly where Jesus aims to take us in this next passage. How do we, how do people like that, if that's what we're supposed to be, how do we make any impact in this world? Matthew chapter 5, pick it up in verse 13. Follow along as I read. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said to them, and He says to us this morning, You are salt, and you are light. Two metaphors, two commonplace objects in use in the day, light and salt. I was actually going to light this this morning, and then I got to experimenting with this this week, and I kind of decided I was probably going to set the whole place on fire. And uh, so I chose to not do that kind of makes for an interesting sermon, but not necessarily an effective one. 
and salt. I think he uses them as illustrations not only to explain our purpose, but even more importantly, I think this morning, our impact in this world. By the way, about a month ago, actually it was the day after Christmas, December 26th, we were finishing up our Christmas series on Jesus as the Light, and knew I knew this message was coming, this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I did a little preview of the Sermon on the Mount as we talked about This passage here, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. I preached a message on that that day, so I'm not going to preach on that again today. We're going to focus this morning really just on verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. I encourage you, if you weren't here that Sunday, you can go on our website. You can listen to the sermon there. You can also find the link to our YouTube page. You can watch the message if you prefer to watch. I encourage you to go and listen to that message So the first metaphor that Jesus talked here is you are the salt of the earth. Verse 13. Really four things I want to notice about both of these metaphors because as you begin looking at Jesus' first statement of each metaphor, they're essentially the same except he moves from salt to light. Because he begins with the phrase, you are the salt of the earth. And then he says, you are the light of the world. They're essentially the same. The four things in that little statement that we need to notice, and again, it's true of both metaphors. He says, you are the salt. You, meaning you, and it's a plural you, meaning all of you, and it's also emphatic in the Greek, meaning a specific group, meaning it's you, my disciples. Now, in Texas, the plural is y'all, so I'll say that because I grew up there. Y'all, you, this specific group, my disciples, it would refer to all followers of Jesus, but you are the salt. Secondly, it was them, them back then, it's us today, you are the salt of the earth. Not that you might be, maybe, some remote possibility become the salt. And not that you might someday, if we work long and hard enough, we might become the salt. But no, it's present tense. You are already the salt. You, Jesus' disciples, are already the salt. By the way, I notice he doesn't say it's up for discussion. If it were, there would be a lot of us, because we're just that way, we'd say, "Um, could I be pepper or parsley? No, you're salt, okay? And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not one of many salts, not one of many lights. It's not like out in the world there are lots of lights and you are a light of the world. No, it's you, the followers of Jesus Christ, are the light of the world. There's not a Buddhist light and an Islamic light and a, you know, a Hindu light and the Christian light, there is only one light of the world. And lastly, it's that light of the world. There's no other salt but y'all, and you are the salt of the earth. In other words, what he's saying is, if the world, if the earth is going to have salt, if the world is going to have light, they're looking to you for it because you Followers of Jesus Christ, you are right now the only light for all of the world. If the world is going to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, if they are going to see the light of the gospel, they are only going to hear it and see it through you. Followers of Jesus Christ. The world needs you. The world needs us. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are the salt, the light of the world? Well, if you don't believe it, then you're calling Jesus a liar. And I assume you're in church, you're not going to want to do that. 
So we're going to assume that's true. We all believe that. Then the question comes, or should come, if we Christians, if we believers are the salt of the earth, then what in the world does that mean? How are you and I like salt? What is Jesus' point here? And as I pondered that, I thought, you know, probably the place I ought to start is I ought to just go back to the Scripture and say, if Jesus says we're the salt of the earth, I ought to go back in Scripture and see what does the Bible say about salt? Makes sense? So I did. You know, it says a lot about salt. I'm not sure it's all helpful. But it says a lot about salt. Salt in the Bible. One thing I found in the Bible is I found salt is used in many different ways in the Bible. One way I would call savory salt. In other words, it's about flavor. It's about making stuff taste good. That's the way that most often most of us use salt, right? Except our doctors tell us you're eating too much salt, right? I don't think you can, but... uh... I agree with Job when Job said this. Job chapter 6, verse 6. Is tasteless food eaten without salt? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. (laughs) Or shouldn't be. (laughs) Is there flavor in the white of the egg? Not unless you put salt on it or pepper. It's in the Bible. There you go. (laughs) That's one use for salt. Another use I find in the Bible in the Scriptures for Salt is there is salty sacrifices. If you go back and you read through and through the Old Testament law, what you discover is several times there are references to when you bring your sacrifices, you are to bring salt with the sacrifice. For example, Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. It says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. may have escaped you as you're reading through the Scripture that when they were bringing the sacrifices to the temple, grain offerings and meat offerings, they were to bring salt and add with the sacrifice. There were also in the Bible salty contracts or covenants. Matter of fact, one was mentioned right there. You shall not let the salt of the covenant. In Old Testament times, in Bible times, some covenants were, were sealed. They were solemnized by something to do with salt. The Bible really doesn't describe what that looked like. But you'll find another place, for example, in Second Chronicles chapter 13. God made a covenant of salt with David. Another place, another way you find salt used in the Bible is that There were, and I've called it salty babies. (laughs) In a little, small little footnote in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16, it mentions rubbing a newborn baby with salt. Why do that? Well, it was, it was a custom back in parts of the Near East back then, as well as even today in some countries, taking a newborn baby and rubbing them down with salt and some other things. Why? Because salt is a disinfectant. It's part of the, cleansing and and uh, purifying of a newborn baby. You also find in the Bible that that uh, salt was used in agriculture. It was used as a fertilizer, it was also used as a stabilizer in manure piles. Jesus refers to that in Luke chapter 14 verse 35 where he says that corrupted salt is not good for the soil nor good for the manure pile. He's talking about agricultural use. Lastly, and probably the most common way that salt was used, the most valuable way that salt was used in ancient times, matter of fact, even up until just a couple of hundred years ago, before the days of refrigeration, salt was used to preserve food. It was a preservative. You rub it in to meats and food to preserve them so that fish caught in the Sea of Galilee but their market's down in Jerusalem. How do you get it from there without, you know, killing everybody when they buy it? Well, you rub it in salt and, and you take it down. Now it keeps it. You can go sell it in Jerusalem. So, there's a bunch of different uses in the Bible 
What does that all, any of that have to do with what Jesus is talking about? Well, some of it we'd go, oh, I'm not sure. We could say that the whole idea of savory salt, making things flavorful, would have application to us uh, as disciples of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, in fact, takes up that kind of an idea when he writes to the Colossians and he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, in our dealings with people, our words ought to be, as it were, seasoned with salt, with grace, with love, with kindness, with, with goodness, in such a way that it's flavorful. It attracts people, not just to us, it's attracting people to Jesus Christ. That's a, perhaps is what Jesus is talking about. Or maybe we go to that concept of, of salt as a preservative. And maybe Jesus means that you and I, as Christians, are to be a preservative influence in our world. We are in a world that is filled with sin, and sin is corrosive, it's corruptive, and it destroys. And Are we to be a preservative in the world? Well... I think we can find a mini example of that in Scripture as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. But he's addressing a situation, and I'll read just a short passage. Addressing a situation. The church in Corinth is young, and you have people coming to faith in Christ. The, the, the city of Corinth was a very corrupt place. And you have some of these new believers who are asking the question, it's a man who's become a believer, but his wife is an unbeliever. A woman who's a, become a believer, but her husband is an unbeliever. And they say, should I remain married to an unbelieving spouse? And Paul writes this, If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband and he is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And otherwise, your children would be unclean because as it is, they are holy. What he's saying is that a believing husband, a believing wife, a believing person in the home is not saying that they make everybody else in the family a Christian. That suddenly they're all saved. That's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is a sanctifying presence. When a believer is there and they are living out their faith in loveliness, in goodness, in purity, in kindness, in mercy, in peacemaking, all those things we saw earlier, that they act as a sanctifying presence in their home. They change the tone. They change the tenor. They change life and impact life in that home. That's a little microcosm, perhaps, of how you and I are supposed to be, and I think we should be, as believers in this world. The very fact that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we should be living out our Christian faith in such a way that we have an impact in our home, and we have an impact in our workplace, and we have an impact in our school. We have an impact in our golf league and in our bridge club and in the supermarket, wherever we are. We should have an impact, a sanctifying presence that we help keep some people from doing what's wrong. And we help encourage that which is right. So, it could be that Jesus is referring to either of those thoughts of Savor or flavor or sanctifying presence, preservative. But the fact that Jesus doesn't elaborate on either of those concepts makes me think that while they might be included in this, I don't think that's really his point. I think Jesus' point here is more basic. It has to do with, I'll just say here, I think three big concepts as I look at the overall picture of what Jesus is saying, three big concepts about salt that he wants us to grasp. The first is this. Salt is essential. It was a necessary staple. Salt 
was found in the richest of homes and it was found in the very poorest of the poor homes because it was necessary. It was necessary since you didn't have refrigeration. It was necessary for some and all of those things that we talked about earlier. Everybody used salt. It was necessary. In the very same way, I think Jesus is trying to make the point, you and I, as the salt of the earth, as His followers, we are needed in this world. Otherwise, why are we still here? Why didn't Jesus take us to heaven when He went? Well, we weren't here yet. So why doesn't He, at the moment you become a believer in Jesus Christ, just zap us out of here, beam me up? Because He has a purpose here for us. And we're needed here. He needs us as salt and He needs us as light. Not only is salt essential, salt is common. Remember, we asked the question as we began, how can we, ordinary, common, less than ordinary people, impact this great, big, hostile, corrupt, antagonistic world? Well, Jesus says, for my illustrations, I'm choosing two very common things that were in the very poorest of homes. Everybody had them. Everybody needed them. And that brings us to the third thing. Salt is essential. Salt is common. And salt is wonderfully Effective. It's powerfully effective. There's good news, you see, that Jesus says that He will work through common, ordinary people like you and me to impact our world with what is desperately needed. Salt is effective. Two things I want to really point out about salt. One of them is this. Salt permeates. It's one of the things that makes salt so effective. It permeates things. It, its influence goes deep and its influence spreads out. It permeates meat to preserve it. When you put salt on the meat and rub it in, it, it doesn't just sit there on the surface. It permeates and Soaks through. It works its way into the meat. That's why it preserves it all the way through. A little salt adds taste to the whole pile of what we're eating. To the whole hamburger. A little salt dissolves and spreads throughout the whole pot of soup. It permeates most things it touches. A second thing that's about salt is it affects, it changes almost everything it touches. It preserves food. It adds taste. It's unmistakable when you salt something versus when it's not salted. It affects it. It changes it. It rusts metal. Thankfully, we don't have it out there today rusting our cars away, but and thankfully, we don't need it to do something else. Salt melts ice and snow. It affects almost everything it touches. It kills bacteria. It kills germs. It dries things out. It, you know, it affects almost everything. And you see, I think we see what Jesus' point is. He works through ordinary people like you and me and those ragtag disciples back then to permeate society, to permeate the world, and we affect everything we touch. We can look through history from the very beginning of the church until our day today, and what we see is that in the very fact, that's exactly what has happened. Jesus has worked through simple, common Christians to do amazing things, to have marvelous impact. From that fledgling church with those 12 unlikely disciples, 
the gospel spread to the then known world throughout the Roman Empire, as far as North Africa to the south, as far as India to the east, as far as Europe in the through Macedonia and, and Greece and, and on to Italy and over to Spain and even up to, if tradition is right, even up to Britain. Just in that first generation of disciples. Up to our day, where simple, common, ordinary Christians are having marvelous impact for Christ in the least likely places. In some of the places where the gospel or where Christians are most oppressed and where the gospel is most suppressed. Places like China, Middle Eastern countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. Places even like North Korea. There are simple Ordinary Christians who are bringing other people to Christ, who are shining their light in the darkest and most unlikely places. But there's a problem. And the problem is that sometimes what should be salty salt is ineffective because, as Jesus said, look back there at verse 13, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There is salt that has lost its saltiness. It is unsalty. He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on. Now, technically, from what I understand, and I'm not a scientific person, Technically, salt cannot lose its saltiness. As I understand it, sodium chloride is a very stable compound. And as long as sodium chloride is sodium chloride, as long as salt is really salt, it's salty. So, is Jesus wrong? No. Because Jesus isn't talking chemically here. Jesus is talking practically from the experience of the people in that day. And what he's talking about is not that salt somehow becomes unsalty, but rather this, that salt is a necessary thing. You're a guy who uses a lot of salt, as most people did. So you go and buy a wheelbarrow or two of salt. You bring it home, you dump it out, and there you've got this big pile of salt. And now you go and do other things for a few days or a few weeks. And in the meantime, your salt is there and it's exposed to the elements and And you have some rain, you have some humidity, you have various things going on. And what happens is that the salt in their day is very different than the salt that you and I think of when we think of our little, you know, little round cylinder of Morton salt. And we look in there and it's all this nice little fine powder. It's all consistent and it's all very pure and very white and very not so much. Their salt was more like this. There's all kinds of other stuff in there is coarse and not refined. And what happens is that mixed in with all that salt in that nice pile, mixed in there, there is dirt, there's dust, there's, there's little bits of rock, and there's, and there's sand, and all of that is in there. And as it sits there, the rain hits it, and, and the, the salt dissolves, and it leaches away, and what's left is the dirt and the dust and the, and the stuff that was mixed in with the salt. And so at least maybe the top layer is no longer mostly salt with some other impurities. It's mostly impurities with maybe a little salt. And that's the point. Is you come out there to get your salt and you you take a scoop and you realize this isn't salt at all. This is dirt and other stuff. It's It's no longer useful for anything. You toss it out, throw it on the path. Or at least it just helps hold down the dust and whatever. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, that's the illustration. What's the point? You and I are the salt of the earth. And Jesus has just finished telling us in the Beatitudes eight qualities about what we, His followers, are supposed to be like. And He's going to go on through the rest of the sermon and tell us what we, as His followers, should live like. What we should do. And as long as we have those qualities of character, 
As long as we live like and do what He's called us to do as His disciples, we're going to be salty people. Because what Jesus describes in the Beatitudes and what He will describe in the rest of His message is life and character that is radically different than the world around us. Meekness is not a common character in our culture. Peacemakers is not a common characteristic in our culture. Mercy, being merciful, full of mercy, is not a common characteristic in our culture. May I say they're also not normal inclinations for most of us, right? What Jesus is saying, as long as we live like that, we're going to be salty. But the problem comes when we, instead of living like Jesus' followers, we start living like the pagan next door. We start living like the people around us who do not know Jesus Christ. Or we start living like our natural inclinations, wrong as they are. What happens is the saltiness of Jesus is washed away. And what's left is the impurities that are just like the rest of the world around us. And so instead of being like salt, we end up being like the dirt that's all around the salt pile. We've lost our distinctiveness. We've lost our effectiveness. With a salt pile, there's no getting it back. He said, can you make salt salty again? No, you can't. That's bad news. But you see, while we are salt, we're not physical salt. (laughs) The good news is, as I see it, we can be salty salt. If you weren't salty salt last week or the week before, or two weeks before that, or three weeks before that, or last month or last year, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I think you can be salty salt this week. And next week, how can we be salty salt? Well, instead of living like the contaminated world around us, which, by the way, I'm afraid far too many of us do far too often, if we're honest. Simply start putting legs on Jesus' sermon. In other words, start living what he has called us to be. Start living what he has called us to do. In other words, if we just go back to what we've already read, rather than going to what we're going to see in the next weeks or months, go back to what we just read. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, we own our our unworthiness. We own our spiritual bankruptcy. God, I know I'm not worthy of anything. I know I'm guilty. I am, I've got nothing to bring to the table except your grace. Throw myself on your mercy. Do you live with that attitude day in and day out? God, thank you for your mercy. Far too many Christians, far too many of us are proud of our goodness, aren't we? Sometimes, boy, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. Thank you that I'm not like that. Instead of, Lord, thank you for rescuing me from what I was. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over our sin. Mourn over the sin that is in the world around us. We mourn over the destruction and the, the horrible consequences of sin in the world around us. Does that break our heart? Blessed are those who are meek. Those who instead of living for our agenda, what makes me happy, what pleases me, we live for God's agenda. That's meekness. We live to serve Him and to serve others. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. God, I want to be right. Father, I want to do right. I want to help make things right in the world around me. That's somebody who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. 
Blessed are those who are merciful. We talked about that last week. It's compassionate action. It's seeing needs around us and it's being moved to do something about those needs, to help others, to forgive others who don't deserve it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who are not only pure on the outside, we're experts of that as religious people. The people who are pure privately as we are publicly. People who are the same on the outside on the, as in private as on the inside. Wow. People who are peacemakers, who live peaceably with others, who are easy to get along with and help make peace among others. And people who are persecuted for doing right because we found out that if we do follow Jesus Christ, ultimately, sooner or later, it's going to cost. But he says they endure that with joy. Are you joyful and happy when you suffer for doing the right thing? That is an impressive list. But we can start working on that one today, or that whole list. Start trying to be and do what Jesus has called us to be. And what we will discover is we will be salty people. Jesus guarantees if we live like this, by the way, ultimately it will bring blessedness. Ultimately, it will bring happiness, joy. doesn't say it's always going to be easy, but it will always bring joy. And we'll be salty. We'll have an impact in our world. You know, in our day, in our age, in Christian culture, there is common thinking It may not be verbalized this way, but in practice, this is the way most of Christian leaders and ministries and churches and most of us think and act. We think that if we get the message of Christ packaged right, people in the world will want to follow Jesus. You know, if we get a charismatic and eloquent pastor or evangelist or teacher, if we get the right leader, and if we develop the right strategies, and if we target the right demographics, and if we develop and design the right facilities, and if we construct the right programs, and if we have the right music, And if we have the right aesthetics, and if we have the right, you know, whatever, if we utilize technology to the fullest, when all of these things, the world will beat the door down getting to the church and coming to follow Christ. Do we not see Christendom act that out in our culture? May I say that the world has seen all of those things in spades in the last 50 years. Are they impressed? Not really. There's not a thing wrong with nice buildings. Not a thing wrong with using technology. Not a thing wrong with having... Good music and good preaching, good preachers. None of those things will reach our world for Jesus Christ. It's not going to impact a lost and dying world for Christ. You see, they've seen that and they don't buy it. You see, they're looking skeptically past all of those things and looking at all of those who name the name of Jesus Christ, including those of us in this room, and they're looking past all that to look at us to see, do they really believe that? And I think the answer often is they they don't think so. See, they've seen plenty of high-profile pastors and teachers and ministries 
in big churches and big things. They've seen them blow apart and fall apart in disgrace. And they go, does anybody really believe the Jesus they say they believe? What are they looking for? They're looking for salty Christians. Jesus uses two very common things, salt and light. Things that were in every household, the richest household and the poorest household. And He used them to illustrate the picture how you and I can impact our world. Salt, to demonstrate and illustrate how you and I need to be pure. We need to really live what we say we believe. We need to live out what Jesus has called us to live like and to be like. And light, which we didn't really talk about today. Light, which calls for you and I to live boldly. Nobody takes a light and sticks it under a basket. That's insane. And yet that's what we do as Christians. We try to be secret service Christians, you know. To live boldly for Christ. He says, if we will do those things, we will have the penetrating power of salt. And we will have the power of light that cannot be stopped by the darkness. And little ordinary people like you and me, ordinary people like Peter, James, Andrew, John, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, will impact our world. President Woodrow Wilson, back in 1914, second year of his presidency, he wrote something that was interesting. He recalled something that had happened decades before, before he was president, before he was ever in politics, back in the days when he was, I think, as when he was a professor back when nobody really knew who he was. It was a time where he went into a barber shop. And uh, here's what he wrote. He said, A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself and sat in the chair next to me. Every word that he uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal and vital interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. Moody was in the chair next to me. I purposely lingered after he left and noted the singular effect his visit had upon the barbers in that shop. And I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. Mr. Moody was Dwight L. Moody, probably the greatest evangelist of his day, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. I thought that was an interesting story because, you see, most of us think if we're going to impact our world, we need to be somebody like Dwight Moody who can, you know, make a big splash. I doubt any of us could effectively preach to the crowds of thousands and tens of thousands of people that he regularly spoke to. But what's interesting is that on that day, he walked into a barber shop next to an unknown guy who was later going to become president of the United States to get a haircut among men that he didn't know and nobody else knew. And Mr. Moody just came in as a man and sat down in a chair and started having conversation. And in the way that he dealt with the, with the barber, with kindness, with genuine interest, genuine concern, his tenor, his tone, it gripped apparently the whole barber shop, not just that man. And it certainly gripped, you know, Woodrow Wilson in the next chair. And eventually Mr. Moody talks about Jesus. And it makes an, it makes an impact. So much that Woodrow Wilson, instead of leaving when his haircut was done, sits around to see what happens when this guy leaves. And he realized there was a man who impacted people. And you see, while most of us 
will never be and could never be Dwight Moody, the great powerful evangelist speaking before thousands of people. Any one of us and every one of us should be the type of person who walks into a room and makes an impact by the very character that we exude, the love and grace of Christ coming through us that lays the foundation for the opportunity to share something of Jesus Christ and not have people go later when we leave. If that's what being a Christian is, count me out. Jesus calls us to be salty. Let's pray. Father, the reality is we look at ourselves and we know so much of the time we are not salty Christians. We are not salty followers of Jesus. So much of the time we are focused on ourselves. So much of the time we do not exhibit those characteristics that you have called us to be and to do. So much of the time we have compromised ourselves with the world. We're really no different from them in what we, in how we think, in how we live, in what we value, in what we laugh at, in what we watch, in what we, uh, what we treasure. You address so many of those things as the sermon goes on. Father, may we be different than that. May we be distinct from the world around us. May we be salty followers of Yours. There's blessing in it for us. But more than that, Father, it makes an impact in our world. And our world desperately needs salt and desperately needs light. Because that's the only way that they'll hear of your love for them and your grace for them in Jesus Christ. So, Father, may we be salty people, salty followers of Christ. In His name we ask it. Amen.